thanks y'all so much for leading us in that. Absolutely. Um, I was talking with Kenny this past week uh, on Wednesday after Wednesday night church, and he was sharing with me how the youth group has been praying for uh, lost friends of theirs. Uh, I've even gone so far as to place those names up in a prominent position where they, I guess I can go that way now, can I? Prominent position where they can um, see those week in and week out, be praying for those. And so that's really what we're going to talk about today is that people are lost and how God wants for us to reach out to them. We're in a series on the book of Romans. Uh, we were in Romans chapter 1 last week. We learned what the gospel was, that it's that Greek word euangelion, which means good message or good news. And so um, Paul was saying, hey, look, this is good. Why would I be ashamed to share this with somebody? I mean, if I'm going to go share something good with them, if I'm going to share something bad, I can understand that, but I have something good to share with them. And so we talked about that last week. Today, uh, we go from good news actually to bad news. And uh, Paul's going to talk to us a little bit about that bad news. So um, our text comes from Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 through 20. If you would, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Here we go. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. You may be seated. Thanks, y'all, so much. We're going to walk through these verses together. We'll start at verse 18. And in verse 18, Paul tells us that God is angry. God is very upset. He's righteously angry. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That Greek word that's translated there, wrath, is the word orgai, and it's referring to unbridled passion. The idea here that God's passion is so, his anger is, is a passionate anger. He's full of rage. He's full of fury. You say, well, what is God so angry about? What's got him so worked up? Well, he says, verse 18, it's because of the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. Now, I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about those two words. When we think about ungodliness, we, talk, we typically think about some sort of blasphemy. We think about something we've done against God himself. We think about not giving him, being irreverent, not giving him his proper respect. When we think about unrighteousness, on the other hand, we're talking more about our immoral behavior. We're talking about sinful behavior, the kinds of things that we do to other people, as well as the things that we maybe we do to oneself. Um, and there's a nuance in the Greek language here that is getting lost in translation. It just because it doesn't quite come through in our English language. And that nuance is that Paul is not speaking in vague generalities here about how we're irreverent toward God, how we're immoral in our personal behavior. Rather, he's saying that these two sins are actually joined together to form one sin, a universal sin. It's a sin that all of mankind um, commits. Um, not a whole bunch of varying ways in which we're irreverent, not a whole bunch of varying ways in which we're immoral. He says you got to take those two things together. And so Paul doesn't leave us guessing, well, what is this doubled up sin that all of mankind is guilty of? He says there in verse 18 that we are, we are guilty of the sin of suppressing the truth. In the Greek language, it's literally referring to a spring here and how a spring would be coiled. And we're pushing down basically on God's truth, which is inside of us. We're pushing it down, suppressing it, trying to compress it, trying to keep it from being active in our life. But it's always kind of wanting to spring back up and say, no, 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 this is what's right. Uh, that's what's wrong. And so we're trying to suppress that with all of our logic, our craftiness, forcing it down into our subconscious, trying to scrub that truth of God out of our minds. And so the specific sin that is both irreverent and immoral is the sin of suppressing truth. 
Paul goes on to say that this truth is not something hidden. It's not something obscure. It's not something that's difficult for us to ascertain. He says in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. In other words, this is something that's obvious to everybody. Any person who ever walks on the planet can discern this truth. It's not something hidden to them. This is not a truth that you have to have a Bible to be able to discover. You don't have to read the Word of God in order to learn this truth. It's something that you can just observe. It's something you can just figure out even without the revelation of God's written truth. This truth is plain. In some translations, some of your translations, it may use the word manifest. Again, it is easily found. It is easily discovered. This is not a truth that is buried with some sort of hidden clues that it requires a philosopher to sit for hours and contemplate on and then share with the rest of us what it is that they had learned, whatever it is that they had discovered. This does not require hours of tedious research. Rather, this truth that God gives is plain, it is clear, it's something that everybody gets. You say, well, what is it? Right? Tell me what it is. Well, Paul goes on to tell us, he says, it's the truth about God. And then in verse 20, that's in verse 19, and then in verse 20, he goes on to qualify that and says... And it's God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature. Let's break those two thoughts down. Eternal power, what are we talking about there? When we think about eternal power, we're talking about the fact that we have a creator, that God is our creator, that we look at this world and we go, this all didn't just come from nowhere, but that there's somebody who's responsible for it. And so Paul says anybody can figure that out. It doesn't take somebody with a PhD to figure out that this all didn't just appear out of nowhere. And so that's a plain, obvious fact. Anybody who's just being honest would say, you know what? Yeah, I mean, the life in the world and the complexity of the world came from something. And so not only that he's a creator, but also that this creator is omnipotent, that he's all-powerful. Uh, the idea also that this creator is omniscient, that is, that he's all-knowing. And when we think about his divine nature, we're talking about God's holiness. We're talking about the fact that God is a pure and holy God, and that he has moral standards for the way that he wants us to conduct our lives, and that God, because he's holy, has the right to set those moral expectations of his creatures. Paul says these basic fundamentals are plain to every human being. He goes on to say, I don't have the verse for you, but he goes on to say in Romans chapter 2 and verse 14 that all of us have this conscience and that this conscience informs us of these moral standards which God gives us. So again, how does mankind supposedly know all of this? Paul says again in verse 20 that these truths have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things which have been made. And the things which have been made. So Paul's basically saying, all you got to do is walk outside and look around. And you can figure these things out. Interact with another human being. And you can figure these things out. It's not, it doesn't take, again, a rocket science to discover this stuff. You know, I was listening to a presentation recently about enzymes. Very interesting things, those enzymes. Um, what I discovered and what I was listening to is it was talking about how enzymes drive all the reactions in your body. I mean, every reaction that happens inside of your body has an enzyme that is assigned and it's designed to drive that particular reaction. So every reaction, every unique reaction has a unique enzyme that is present to make that happen. Um, and if you, don't have the if you don't have that particular enzyme to create that particular reaction, then it can result in illness, it can result in disease, it can result in death. You say, well, Gordon, I'm sure I'm glad I got all my enzymes. I mean, how many enzymes do I have? Like six, eight, 12? I mean, what kind of, what are we talking about here? Well, friends, not only do you have hundreds of enzymes in your body, not only do you have thousands of enzymes in your body, but you literally have millions of enzymes swirling around inside of your little body. That's remarkable, isn't it? I mean, wow, it's amazing. And each of them is designed to do a specific task. And again, if you don't have that specific enzyme, then that specific task doesn't happen. And it can result in some really bad stuff. 
So, you know, as I'm thinking about this, I'm going, you know, if I'm a molecular biologist and I study this stuff for a living, and I'm, I'm learning about enzymes, I don't see how somebody who studies this stuff for a living can look at this and go, there is no God. I mean, that's just, that's, exactly, that's just silly, that's just ridiculous to think that somebody, I mean, that's basically like saying that you could take nuts and bolts and wires and chips and metal, put them all in a box together, shake the box up, open the box up, and a laptop computer be perfectly there ready for you to use. I mean, that's ridiculous, right? And the human body is so much more sophisticated, friends than a laptop computer. And so for us to look at creation, to look at life and the building blocks of life and all these things that are required for life to be able to, to function and to exist and to do and to be healthy and to thrive, I mean, there's clear evidence of precision and design and complexity behind all of that. So again, Paul says, it should be really obvious to us that there's a creator who's omnipotent, who's omniscient. It should be obvious to us that there's a creator who's holy, have moral standards for the way that we conduct our lives. All right, well, where does all that leave us? Well, Paul concludes, again, that it should be plainly obvious. And then he says in verse 20 that all of mankind, as a result of this, are without excuse. In other words, we know better. We know better. I mean, we can pursue all kind of faulty logic that we want. We can suppress God's truth and sear our own conscience but friends, we cannot claim to be innocent. We can't. Just look around, and we know. You know, when you and I get to heaven, the argument that, well, God, I didn't know. Romans chapter 1 is telling us that won't hold any weight. Paul says all we've got to do is look around. It's plainly obvious that God exists and what our creator God is like, and that we violated his laws. Again, we know better. We may not act on it. We may not live it out. But friends, we know better. And so, as Paul says, we are without excuse. And it's for this reason that God is justified in being passionately angry with mankind. Now, uh, before we get to our most important question, we'll get to that here in just a second. But this particular teaching always raises the issue of, well, what about the innocent people living in the Amazon jungle, right? Who've never heard about Jesus. Like, is God angry at them? Is his wrath I mean, are they on a collision course with God's wrath? Uh, so, you know, what about them? Doesn't seem fair. Well, of course, all of the innocent people in the Amazon bush are going to go to heaven. But the, Paul, the point that Paul's making here is that there are no innocent Amazon people living in the bush. And there are no innocent people living in the, in the you know, backwoods of Africa or wherever you might be, that's apart from, you know, the world in which we live. That's Paul's point, that there are no such thing as innocent people, that all people know this basic truth, and that all people have rebelled against this truth and have suppressed this truth by different means. And so, therefore, all people are subject to the wrath of God. Paul is making a case for the urgency of the gospel. You know, you can grow up in Atlanta, Georgia, and have never darkened the door of a church. And you can be just as lost as somebody living in the Amazon bush. But again, Paul's point is, you don't need a Charles Stanley sermon to bring you up to speed to the fact that there is a God and that he has standards for the way that we are to live our lives. And so because of that, our suppression of the truth, we are all guilty. 
And so this notion that there are innocent people in the world, friends, that is not biblical. It is not biblical. In the words of R.C. Sproul, God is not going to punish someone for rejecting someone he's never heard of, but their destination is for hell, or is hell, for the rejection of the one that they have heard of. We know we're not innocent. Or as Paul puts it for his, verse 20, for his invisible attributes have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made so that men are without excuse. All right, well, that's our treatment of this topic for today, and so that means it's time to ask the question we ask every week around here. Y'all doing okay? All right. Question we ask every week around here, what difference does all this make to my life? That's a really great question. Let's see if we can answer that together. You know, God does not leave us without a remedy. We know from Scripture that God provided a way for us to get back into right standing with Him, to have our sins forgiven, and this is why Jesus came. God, in His great mercy, sent His Son Jesus as the remedy for our sin problem so that humanity could have that fixed. Jesus suffered and died on the cross as the payment for our sins. Jesus substituted Himself on the cross in our place. He died for us. He took the punishment that was due to us so that we might have our sins forgiven and go on one day to live in heaven with our Heavenly Father. What we have to do is to accept what Jesus did on the cross. We have to appropriate the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross to our own life, and we do that by asking Jesus to enter into our life, to forgive us of our sins, to become our Lord, to become our Savior. This is what John the Baptist declared, John chapter 3 and verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son, Jesus, has eternal life. Whoever does not believe or does not obey the Son, that is, rejects Him, shall not see eternal life, but the wrath of God remains on that person. Verse, uh, chapter, John chapter 3 and verse 18. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. The Apostle John said, 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Verse 12, whoever has the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have eternal life. Friends, I don't know how you can say it any more clearly than that right there, Right? I mean, the Bible is being very clear that God is willing to forgive, God is willing to restore, and that God has made a way for us to get to heaven, but there's only one way for that to happen. Now, indulge me for a moment. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and your trust in the work that Jesus accomplished in the cross, you've never entered into a personal relationship with Him, I don't know how you're planning on getting to heaven, but the Bible is very clear that there is only one way that that's going to happen. And it's through Jesus Christ and the blood that he shed on the cross on your behalf. Man, remember, he is your substitute. He paid the penalty for your sins. But again, you have to appropriate that into your own life. Something for you to think about. Now, if you're a believer this morning, this means something to us as well. What I hope is that it will convince us again of the urgency of the gospel. Friends, people that you and I pass by every day are on a collision course with the wrath of God. That's what Romans chapter 1 is teaching us. Every day, there needs to be a sense of urgency in us to share this good news about Jesus with people. 
General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, in talking about his new recruits, said, you know what, I wish I could take all of my new recruits, suspend, tie a rope around their waist, and suspend them over hell for one hour. That would be a unique exercise. He said, and then he goes on to say, if I could do that, every person joining the Salvation Army, it doesn't matter what else I would teach them, would become an indomitable force for winning people to Christ. Friends, God is not going to take you and I and tie a rope around our waist and, ha- and suspend us over hell for an hour. But I don't know how God could tell us any more clear than he's told us right here in Romans chapter 1 that people are lost. Friends, this needs to be a passion in us to want to share this good news. It's good. And we're not bringing people bad news. We're bringing them good news that they have a way that God has made for them to go to heaven. Friends, there needs to be a willingness in us to forget about what people think. There needs to be in us an intensity in our lives about reaching lost people, because if you believe what Paul is teaching us here, then that's going to be the way it is. You're concerned about people heading toward a disaster in eternity. You know, I suppose one of the greatest examples of this is the life of Adoniram Judson. I got a picture of him for you here. He was a missionary to Burma. He was born in 1788 in, uh, I think I got it written, Baldwin, Massachusetts. And um, his dad was a minister, a, a prominent minister in New England. And he had hoped that his son would go on into the ministry like he had and have a nice parish and have a nice life and be a big wig in New, New England. Um, And Judson was a brilliant young man. He went on to college. He graduated at 19 from college as the valedictorian of his class at 19, right? And uh, he decided he didn't want to have anything to do with Christianity. He didn't want to have anything to do with Christ. When he came out of school, he was just, he rejected God. He rejected everything about the Bible. He was a complete, he was an atheist. And he actually became an atheist because of his roommate who had been talking, who was an atheist himself, a guy by the name of Ernest. And Ernest had been sharing with him about how this is ridiculous to believe in God, that's irrational, it breaks all you know, intellectual mores. And so he, just, he basically convinced Judson that God wasn't real and that he just needed to reject all this stuff about the Bible and Christianity. And so Judson did. He became an atheist himself. Well, not long after Judson had graduated from college, he was off traveling And uh, one night he came to an inn where he was traveling, and as he checked in, the man said to him, I apologize, but the only room that we have available for you is a room right next door to a man who is laying in his bed, and he's dying. Uh, He's very ill. He probably won't make it through the night, and that's all I have left. Well, Judson said, well, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in any of this stuff about hell. I'm not afraid. Give me the room. And so he took the room. Well, all night long through the wall, Judson can hear the shrieks and the groans and the terror of this man as he lie dying in his bed. And it kept him up all night. And the next morning, bleary-eyed, Judson went down to the innkeeper, and he said, well, what happened to the man? And the innkeeper said, well, he died early in the morning. And Judson said, well, do you know who he was? And the innkeeper said, yeah. He said he was a young man who had graduated from Providence College. His name was Ernest. True story. Well, Judson was completely broken, completely devastated. And he changed all of his travel plans, and he went back home to his dad, and he said, Dad, I I need to become a Christian. He said, Dad, tell me, lead me to Christ. And so his dad led him to Christ, shared with him Christ, and and led him in a prayer to receive Jesus. And then uh, Judson just, you know, that event just, he never got over it. 
And so instead of becoming a minister like his dad had hoped, he decided he was going to leave New England. He was going to leave a comfortable little parish. He was going to leave a comfortable little life because he believed that there were people all over the world who were dying just like his friend Ernest. And so on February 18th of 1812, Judson sailed from America to the Far East. The first baby that he and his wife had on the way to Burma died. When his wife got to Burma, they had to carry her off on a stretcher. Shortly after they had arrived in Burma, he was sharing the gospel and they threw him in jail. They tied Judson's hands and his feet together and hung him upside down for days on end. He contracted a disease and almost died himself. For the first 14 years of his ministry, Judson buried his wife, Anne, and he buried all of their children in Burma. Uh, it took six years of preaching in Burma before Judson would ever lead the first person to Christ. Six years. He buried a second wife in Burma. He buried three children from his second wife in Burma. And he wrote home to America, and he asked people, please, would somebody come help me? He felt just totally alone in this effort to share the gospel. And people heard about the conditions, and no one was willing to come. You say, well, why didn't he just give up? I mean, things were not going well. Why didn't he just say, you know what, it's time for me to head back to New England. It's time for me to go get that parish and live out that life and just put this all behind me. Friends, he didn't give up because he believed that the Burmese people were lost. He believed what Paul said in Romans chapter 1. 37 years, Adoniram Judson stayed in Burma. Most of it by himself. After 37 years of ministry, by the time he died, Adoniram Judson had translated the entire Bible into the Burmese language. By the time Adoniram Judson had died, he had established 63 churches in Burma. And by the time he died, he had led over 7,000 Burmese people to Jesus Christ because he believed what God said, that people are lost. Friends, that's what kept him going. You know, as I listened to that, or read that story this past week and was putting my notes together, it just kind of made me wonder. I really wondered, do we really believe, like Judson believed, that people are lost and they're heading for a collision course with the wrath of God? Do we really believe that? Are we convinced of what Paul says here? I hope that you do believe that. And moreover, I hope that you and I are willing to walk out of here saying, Lord, this week, I know that I'm going to encounter lost people everywhere I go. And God, I pray that you would help me to overcome my apprehension and that you would help me to overcome my reticence. And God, that you would help me to overcome my sense of embarrassment and my fear of sharing this good news with people that I know are lost. God, that you would make me bold for Jesus Christ. Friends, you don't have to go to Burma to be an Adoniram Judson. All you have to do is open your mouth. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you so much for just taking us down this road with you today, revealing to us from your word the real crisis that is present at all times, as long as human beings are here breathing on this earth. God, we know that we have the remedy. 
we possess this information, this good news. God, may we be faithful to uh, push through the sweaty palms and the dry tongue and the fear of embarrassment to share what we've got, which is so good, with a world that's heading toward a collision course with your wrath. God, we just uh, turn over this time of communion to you now. We know there are people on all of our minds that we will see this week, people on my own mind, that I've been praying for for a while, that I know I'm going to see this week. Lord, may we be faithful. May we be bold, even if our voice is trembling, Lord, to share what we've got about Jesus. And Lord, we just ask that you would open the hearts of those that hear and that you would uh, just bless the feet of those who bring this good news. Lord, we thank you for your shed blood and for your broken body, which makes all of these things possible. We commit this time of communion and worship to you. In Christ's holy name, amen.